Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Schwab Asset Management. We are talking today with Investment News contributing columnist Mary Beth Franklin. And keep in mind, in the land of the three named people, Mary Beth Franklin is queen. Okay, so don't mess around. <laughs> Um, we are going to talk about some changes, or I don't know if they're changes, or maybe kind of the inevitable in Social Security today. Um, some, I guess the latest numbers were crunched, and it looks like Social Security is going to, I guess, go into the red in 2033 or 34, something like that. I kind of have lived most of my adult life thinking Social Security was in the red, but uh, that's just my jaded view of our, uh, of our, uh, our bumbling leaders in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mary Beth, how are you doing today? Thank you for being here. I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeff and Bruce, for inviting me on the Investment News Podcast. Is that a bit like the Ohio State? Of course, of course. Well, Mary Beth, I checked my notes. What I had you down for the last time you were on was October 2020. Oh, it's been a while. Does that make sense to you or, or what? Does make sense because usually every October, the Social Security Administration announces what the cost of living adjustment would be for the next year. Right. So it's logical we would have been talking about Social Security back then in October. And it's also logical that we would talk about Social Security now because each year, Social Security trustees are supposed to issue um, an annual report on the state of the trust funds, those reserve pots of money that will help fund Social Security benefits. And the last couple of years, they've been very late in issuing their annual report. It was supposed to come out by May 1st each year, and some years it was July, and some it was August, and Boy, was I surprised last week when they were right out on schedule and they um, issued a report at the end of March saying, as expected, that the trust funds are creeping ever closer to depletion. Um, right now, the combined trust fund, what they call old age survivor and disability trust fund, if Congress did nothing, would be depleted by 2034. Um, I don't think Congress will do nothing. Bottom line, currently more than 65 million people receive Social Security benefits. By definition, most of them are older, and older people tend to vote in much higher percentages than younger people. So I really don't think Congress wants to tick off, which by next decade would be more than 70 million voters. Including me. Including you and me. <laughs> and and but not Jeff. Jeff's only thirty nine, so he's yeah. got a long way to go to, towards. Yeah, I was uh I was sick for ten years. So Benjamin Button, they call <laughs> <Yeah>. him. Yeah. <laughs> so Mary Beth, the um first of all you say if Congress does nothing, I, I kinda think every day that Congress does nothing, but again, <laughs> that's me. Um what what um what, what when you say running out of money what does that mean in in political speak? Well, what is the what is the Social Security Trust Fund, right? You want to know what that is, and then what's the dilemma? Right. Let's let's do some basic explanation of how Social Security works. Every one of us that works 
has this little line taken out of our paycheck. Most people want to know who is Mr. FICA and why is he taking <laughs> money out of my paycheck? The Federal Insurance Contribution Act dating back to 1935 that created Social Security. Right. And a portion is taken out of our paychecks. It's 6.4% um, up to a certain maximum wage amount. This year, it's $160,200. So if you make less than that, you are paying 6.2% of all your gross wages. If you earn more than that, you are paying 6.2% up to that cap, and then you do not pay any Social Security taxes on the excess amount. That's one of the problems of long-term funding. Uh, the other part of this equation is your employer also matches that contribution. So the 6.2 plus 6.2 makes 12.4. But if you're somebody like me who's self-employed, you have the privilege of paying both sides of that as an employer and an employee for 12.4% on your wages or net self-employment income. So Social Security technically is a self-funding program. This money that comes from these FICA taxes, payroll taxes, are designed to pay only Social Security benefits. The money does not come out of the general treasury. And by law, it can't borrow money from the treasury unless Congress changed the law. So what has happened? I'm going to do a history lesson. Back in 1983 was the last time Social Security was in some real financial trouble that they weren't going to be able to pay all the promised benefits. And at the last minute, Congress rode in like the cavalry in 1983 to fix the problem. So in the 80 plus year history of Social Security, no one has ever missed a check. The, the money has been coming through since the law was created. But back in 1983, they said, wow, we need to do things to fix it for the long term. And looking ahead to the huge baby boomer generation that would start retiring around 2010, Congress back then said, let's collect more FICA tax revenue than we need and stockpile it in what we call the trust funds. Now, the original idea was that was going to be in a lockbox. Nobody was ever going to be able to touch that money. But, you know, Congress had to get its greedy little mitts on it. So it does actually borrow money from the Social Security Trust Fund for other government spending, but it pays it back with interest. So that's one of the sources of, of funding Social Security. Tell me when you want to take a break and I'll go into the next explanation. <laughs> So Congress does borrow money from Social Security, obviously, and you say they do pay it back, right? With interest, yes. But we're still dealing with a shortfall because we have more people retiring and living longer, not enough people contributing in. I notice. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Mary Beth, about you said you pay up to 106, uh, or the money's withdrawn uh, up to 160 some thousand dollars a year. And that's part of the problem. Are you suggesting that people, that uh, the tax should be applied all the way to the sky? That is not my suggestion. It is one of the suggestions. And again, let's go back to the history lesson. When Congress dealt with long-term financing the last time around, nearly 40 years ago, it said as long as 90% of U.S. wages were being taxed for FICA purposes to fund Social Security, Social Security would never run out of money. 
The problem is so many people make so much more than the taxable wage base that are not contributing to Social Security. We have this um, wide income inequality as far as what various people earn in their jobs. So at this point, only 83% of U.S. wages are being taxed for Social Security funding purposes. So that's one part of the problem. Not as much of U.S. wages are being taxed because so many people are making more than the taxable wage base. The other problem, as Jeff mentioned, was not only are Americans living longer than they were back in 1935 when this was created, but there are fewer people in the workforce to pay the taxes to fund today's retirees because it's a pay-as-you-go system. When you're paying your FICA taxes each week, it is not going into some future file that says this is Jeff Benjamin and Bruce Kelly's future Social Security benefit. Oh no, that money is going directly to pay the benefits of today's retirees, maybe your parents, maybe your grandparents. And so we are depending on the future workers when we retire to pay our benefits. The problem was back in the 1930s when this started, there were more than 30 workers per retired beneficiary. And of course, it was a brand new program that was just getting started. That ratio of workers to retirees has declined over the years, so it's now less than three workers per retiree. And again, that's one of the problems. We have this aging, large baby boomer generation that's living a long time and not enough workers. See, I blame I blame my kids. <laughs> well, you've they're been not working yet, you know. Well. Be nice to them because they're going to be paying your Social Security benefits. They're also going to choose your nursing home. So be really yeah. nice to them. And and so Mary Beth, for the for what happened was I, I think what how the story was that it was expected for this the, the trust fund, the Social Security Trust Fund, to run out of the money by twenty thirty five. Now they're saying it's twenty thirty four. And that roughly translates, instead of getting 100 cents on the dollar of the benefit you were promised, you're now in line. If, if Congress were to do nothing, not raise taxes, not set aside, not create a new investment fund, like I think Jeff has spoken about, in that I've heard Jeff talk about in the past, that would be more akin to some of the other pension systems, uh, uh, public uh, pension systems globally outside the U.S., it people will get like 80 cents on the dollar of the benefit. Is that the kind of the thing? That the idea is because Social Security legally can only pay benefits from its own reserves, its trust funds. Um, if the trust funds were to run dry, as projected, there would be enough ongoing FICA tax revenues from those payroll taxes to pay about 80% of promised right. benefits. That would mean a 20% cut across the board for current and future retirees. If we do nothing, if the country If we doesn't. do nothing. Right. I do not see that as a viable option. But as I tell people all the time, this is not a mathematical problem. This is a political problem, just like it was in 1983, the last time we faced it. Basically, you have um, Republicans who generally oppose raising taxes. You have Democrats who generally oppose any sort of benefit cuts, and they include things like raising the full retirement age gradually as a benefit cut. 
Uh, so the the road to compromise, as always is the case in Washington, is you have to make sure both parties are equally unhappy. We'll have to raise a little bit from the taxes. We'll probably have to scale back on some of the benefits. And then there are alternative ideas, as Jeff had alluded to. Right now, those trust fund reserves are invested in special issue government bonds that pay about 2%. There has been an argument of why can't some of the Social Security trust fund reserves be invested in something that would yield um, a higher rate. And, and that may be something that will be considered going forward. Uh, on one hand, I am optimistic in that political leaders are finally talking about this. We went through the last three presidential elections and virtually nobody said anything about Social Security, even though we knew it's destined to run out of money if Congress doesn't act. During President Biden's State of the Union address earlier this year, he talked about Social Security and Medicare. You may remember there were cheers, there were boos, and basically the talk was, okay, let's take Social Security and Medicare off the table when we have the debt ceiling debate this summer. That does not solve a problem, but it does create political slogans for the 2024 presidential campaign. We're going to be hearing a whole lot about save Social Security and Medicare. To me, that means we will see no concrete action until after the 2024 campaign, and it may be a whole lot after that campaign. Schwab Asset Management is proud to sponsor the Investment News Podcast. In today's complex world, Schwab Asset Management provides a simple, straightforward approach to investing. As one of the largest and most experienced asset managers, they offer low-cost core ETFs for building the foundation of a diversified portfolio. Their focused lineup, which includes market cap index and strategic beta ETFs, is a reflection of a commitment to deliver exceptional experiences to investors and the financial professionals who serve them. Learn more at Schwab Asset Management dot com backslash ETFs. That's schwabassetmanagement.com backslash ETFs. Well, I want to ask you about the, the idea of uh, that has, I, I don't know if you're in favor of it or not, Mary Beth, but um, the increasing the the tax, the, the level of the tax, not the amount, not the percentage, but going up beyond 164000 or whatever it is. To me, if you do that and you don't increase the the cap on benefits, I mean that's just a uh, that just lopsides the whole thing, and I, you, you can see why people would be against that, can't you? I and I agree with you completely. I think there is a valid argument to make that the taxable wage base should be higher than it is which would affect, at this point, only people who are making more than 160000 a year and change. But I firmly believe the, the way it works now, you are taxed up to a certain wage base each year, which increases with inflation. But as a result, your future benefits will also be larger because you have paid into this system. Now, there are some people that say, well, we should tax the wealthy you know, make sure they pay more into Social Security, but they should not benefit from more Social Security benefits in the future. And I agree with you, Jeff, that is lopsided. It also destroys the basic contract 
of how Social Security was created, that this was an earned benefit, that you pay taxes on your wages while you work, and you are promised a future benefit based on what you have paid in and a certain formula of how it's the benefits are calculated and your age at time of claim. So I'm a big believer in, yes, we might have to wage, raise the taxable wage base further than it is right now, but I think people should get a commensurate amount of future benefits. And doesn't that kind of nullify the increased tax then? Well, it, um, it would help, but it would not help as much as just raising the tax and not giving a bigger benefit. There's um, the, the Democrats in Congress for the last couple of years have really been pushing for an expansion of Social Security benefits to reflect the challenges of a 21st century workforce. They say you have so many women that take time out of the workforce to care for children or elders, and that means they're not earning a future Social Security benefit and they can't save for retirement. Shouldn't those people get some sort of caregiver credit towards a future Social Security benefit. Nice idea, also expensive. Who's gonna pay for it? The Democrats would like wealthier people to pay for any kind of expansion. There's also talk of, we have gig economy workers, people who won't have pensions, often don't have 401ks. Shouldn't we be looking out for them, the more vulnerable in the in the workforce? So yeah, it is. it's a tough challenge. I mean, there are a lot of issues uh, a, a lot of um, people at stake, their futures at stake. But what I firmly believe is you, when you look back, what had happened during the pandemic, you saw how dependent people were on Social Security benefits. And when you look demographically, you look at millennials and Gen Xs and boomers and retirees, the people who were the least financially affected by the pandemic were the retirees who had Social Security benefits, that guaranteed income. I think it underscored the value of having this guaranteed income for life, particularly where so few people have pensions anymore, but it's something we have to pay for and in a way that doesn't overburden today's workers who are the ones paying for these benefits. Well, what do you think is the the fix? You've thrown out a lot of scenarios and a lot of obviously new challenges. I mean, I, I don't really have, I, I don't really see your side on the whole gig economy thing. To me, if they're working and they're paying the taxes they're supposed to pay, then they're in no different than a W-2 employee that's working and paying the taxes they should pay. If you, I mean, if I choose to take five years off to go, you know, find myself, I don't really <laughs> think that other taxpayers should should foot the bill because I, I needed that time to myself and I didn't get to contribute to my Social Security the way I would have if I hadn't taken that time off. I think we have um, a changing workforce and, and Social Security was designed in 1935 for workers who generally stayed with one company for their entire life where they had a sole breadwinner and probably a stay-at-home spouse. And, and who also got a pension. And, and many of them had pensions. Right. So things are changing. I, I agree with your point, Jeff, as far no as No more pensions, workers. no more guaranteed pension benefits, very um, few. Unless right? you work right. for the federal government or certain state governments. Right. But, but I think the answer has to lie in a combination of solutions. I think uh, a certain amount of raising the taxable wage base that pays into the system is legitimate as long as people also can expect a bigger benefit as a result. I think that gradually uh, 
raising the full retirement age, which right now is 67 for people who are born in 1960 or later. Um, when Social Security faced its last crisis in 1983, the full retirement age was 65. And when Congress proposed raising it to 67, there was such screaming and gnashing of teeth. How could we possibly do this? But they have phased that two-year increase in over a 40-year period. In my opinion, that is good public policy. If you give Americans decades to get used to changes, you can adapt. And I think today's two-year-olds are probably going to live to 120. They could probably work till 69 or 70 to get a full benefit compared to 67 today. Um, I think the idea of investing a portion of the Social Security Trust Fund in um, something that would earn more than the uh, current special issue government bonds probably make sense. It's going to have to be a combination. Uh, there's also talk that legalized immigration uh, means more workers paying into the system that would result in more money available for retirees. So we have to look at population. We have to look at life expectancy. We have to look at current wages. Um, there is a solution out there. As I said, mathematically, you can make this work. Politically, it's difficult. And what it needs is leadership. And at this point, we do not have leadership. We have um, an evenly divided Congress where nothing gets done without leadership. And at this point, we have you know, political manifestos rather than a blueprint for reform. I think we're going to have to get through the next political, the next presidential election before anybody gets really serious. Well, I want to go to the, we're talking right now about if nothing gets done, then by 2034, uh, benefits will be roughly 88% of what they are right now. I mean, this is just math. So, how, when's the next big drop if nothing gets done by then? I mean, are we looking at, has anybody thought about that? Have you thought about that? Are we looking at 50% by 2050 or something? Or Well, you know, some of this could reverse itself just with demographics. As your huge baby boomer population of retirees dies off, there won't be as much of a demand on the system. Um, and the while the Gen X generation is smaller than the boomers, the millennials, the children of the boomers are bigger than the boomer generation. So some of this will take care of itself. Um, but right now, what from a financial advisor standpoint, what do you tell your clients? Um, it is highly unusual if, if history is any guide for Congress to retroactively cut benefits, meaning if you are a retiree and it's 2034 and the trust fund runs dry, um, even though it says we're going to cut everybody's benefits by 20%, I really don't see that happening. If anything, Congress would probably approve a temporary transfer of general revenue funds to make sure current retirees or perhaps near retirees don't get their benefits cut. Um, you may see younger workers, and I'm just arbitrarily picking a number, maybe people 55 and younger at that point, maybe 
there is a decrease in benefits. So I think from a financial advisor, if you have middle-aged clients, you'd say, let's stress test your retirement income plan. You've got a 401k, you've got an IRA, you've got other savings, and you've got Social Security. And we assume your Social Security benefit at that point is going to be, I'm picking a number, $4,000 a month. Um, What would happen if the worst case scenario, if that Social Security benefit was cut by 20%. Now, we're not talking your entire retirement income being cut by 20%, but the portion of your retirement income that Social Security represents. I think for a lot of advisory clients, while it wouldn't make them happen uh, happy and it would sting, it's not going to destroy the retirement income plan. Um, so part of it, the job of advisors is to calm their clients and to say, let's be proactive and say as, as much as we can on our own for retirement through whether a tax advantage 401k plan, through a Roth IRA, and then in a worst case scenario, if this Social Security benefit was trimmed, you'd probably still going to be okay. I think the bigger issue going forward has to do with taxes. While I say it is unlikely that current retirees would see a cut in benefits, I think they could see something like more of their Social Security benefits may be subject to income taxes. And for those people who are in Medicare and above certain income thresholds, they may find themselves paying more for Medicare benefits, which are uh, income tested. I think the goal of many financial advisors now is to work with people to say, how can we shift some of your money into tax-free accounts like Roth IRAs, like health savings accounts, um, so that when you get to retirement, not all of your money is going to be taxable, that some of your money is going to be tax-free. And each year we can look at, here are your expected costs, here are your sources of income, let's draw some from your fully taxable 401k, let's draw some from your brokerage account that's um, being taxed at capital gains rates on the profits. Let's draw some from your tax-free Roth IRA to keep your taxable income below certain thresholds that will affect both your income taxes and your Medicare premiums. Rick Edelman had an idea um, that he uh, he even acknowledged was wacky, but he, he presented it anyway, that um, people that don't need the social security income should take less of it or none of it at all that sounds like a nice idea um but that's kind of like asking rich people to voluntarily pay more taxes because they have so much money just sitting around their house in big piles right well ironically there is a provision in the social security law where people can basically disavow or return their social security check they make a donation and they get i think it's about fifty thousand dollars a year it's and considering um social security pays out over a trillion dollars in benefits every year it's a nice gesture but it doesn't make a big difference do you think that we could get to the point where there's some kind of means testing where at retirement they look at uh mary beth franklin's giant estate and say uh you've got millions upon millions of dollars, Mary Beth Franklin, and we don't think you need this Social Security as much as Jeff Benjamin does, who doesn't have as much money. So we're going to take this away from you and give it to him. 
I would hope they not do that, but I think if they did, it would be more of a backdoor. Hey, Jeff Benjamin, you have so much money, we're going to tax <laughs> all of your Social Security benefits instead of just up to 85%. And while you're working, we're going to make you pay more FICA taxes, but we're going to keep the same benefit formula under the old system, so you're paying more in and you're not getting as much out. There are ways to accomplish that means testing goal, which they've already done with Medicare in that, hey, most people are paying $165 a month for Medicare Part B, but if your income is over a certain level, you get the privilege of paying more. So that is means testing for Medicare. And I do expect there may be more backdoor means testing in some sort of reform going forward. Mm, something else to worry about, Bruce. Yes, with both of your big estates. I think we should all just have an estate party, right? <laughs> yeah, let's just burn it all. I live in an apartment. I don't have an estate. Yes, but you live in Manhattan, Bruce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're the elite meet. Yeah, northern Manhattan by the GW Bridge, you know. So. <laughs> well, let me tell you what I've been doing in my first year of semi-retirement. Yeah, Can please. I do that? Yes, please. we got to hear about this. This is more fun. Come on, let's talk pickleball. Let's talk pickleball. Yes. So um, during the pandemic, my husband and I, I said, we need to learn a sport that we can do together, considering he's six foot two and I'm five foot two. So there's not a lot of compatible athletic <laughs> opportunities there. But we took pickleball lessons, which is basically a, a combination of tennis and ping pong and badminton all rolled together. And it's basically tennis for old people because the court's smaller. And you play with a wiffle ball and an oversized paddle. Well, we loved it. And we met people that we took lessons with. And now we play about three times a week here in suburban Washington, D.C., in Virginia. And I just spent, and this was my first test of semi-retirement, I spent a month in Florida. And it was across the street from the pickleball courts where I played every nice. day. Nice. And I'll tell you, I mean, here are two courts and about 40 people show up and they stick their paddles on the fence and you just do a constant round robin, robin, four paddles up at a time. You never know who you're going to play with next. Some people are terrific. Some people are just learning, but it is social. Um, most of the people are my demographic. You know, people are 60 plus, 70 plus, in some cases, 80 plus. And, you know, what a great example of healthy aging. However, I'm also told that it's the orthopedic surgeon's best friend as people are blowing out their knees and ankles oh, yeah. and everything else. <laughs> hey, I got a question for you. I, I have never played pickleball. I've seen it up close. I want to play. I actually have paddles and the ball, but I don't have a court nearby um, or anybody to play with. But um, is it always doubles? I always see doubles. It's Can you generally... I mean, there are special rules where you can play it as a single, but then you're running over the whole court. Oh, it's, okay. <laughs> it's generally doubles. And the you, nice spill, thing you is, spill your daiquiri that way. Yeah, you can't yeah. get those really? daiquiris. You know, I mean, whoa, the Manhattan goes south, you go north, you know? I mean, that's no good. 
So um, it takes literally 10 minutes to learn. It's a very simple game. The most Uh confusing part is the scoring and people go for years and they still can't figure that out. Um, But it's very social. Like when you think about it, when you go to play a tennis game, it's like, oh, well, what's your rating? You know, can you play with me? Pickleball is, hey, you want to come play with me? I've got a paddle here. Let's go play. Yeah. All you have to do is go on YouTube. You can find all sorts of videos of how to play it's very social. When we were playing in Florida, not only were there 80-year-olds, but there were 10-year-olds playing with us, too. It's very inclusive. Um, and it's it's a fun way to, to start a morning, as far as I'm concerned. It looks like so much fun. I gotta, that, I'm going to make that one of my goals this summer, to find a place to play. And I bet if you call your local uh, community center or rec center, they probably have lessons. They're converting lots of tennis courts to pickleball courts, which do not make the tennis players very happy. I think you do have turf wars going on, tennis versus pickleball. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) But I highly recommend it. It's lots of fun. I also, um, as your listeners may know, I have switched from writing a weekly column for investment news to a monthly column, which um, I hope people don't miss me too much, but I really like the reduced writing schedule and it allows me to test this thing out called retirement. I write once a month. I do podcasts like this and uh, video presentations and webinars, um, but I have a little more time to myself and I'm, I'm enjoying that. Are you still traveling, Mary Beth? Are you doing the public speaking as much? I, I am. I will be at the Investment News Retirement Income Summit in Chicago on April 17th and 18th. I will be speaking at the Morningstar Conference the following week in Chicago. Oh, wow. I'm doing a lot of webinars, and I'm excited to announce that I just filmed a one-hour special with Maryland Public Television, which will air in June in the Baltimore-Washington market, and it is expected to go PBS-wide in December. Oh, fantastic. So that's pretty exciting. And if anybody's looking for me, you, of course, can email me at mbfranklin at investmentnews.com, or you can check out my brand-new website, MaryBethFranklin.com. Yeah, I can't keep up with Mary Beth. <laughs> Nobody can. I don't know about you, man, but I mean, jeez. But you two, the award-winning <laughs> journalists of investment news, both of you are just amazing. And I know you have uh, rabid fans of the investment news podcast. So I feel absolutely honored that you let me play along today. Rabid? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know about the rest yeah, of the well, stuff, though. Well, thank you, Mary Beth, for enlightening us on this Social Security conversation. It's a great topic. To it's have, obviously I mean, an ongoing conversation. Yeah, and yeah. It's, you know, it's, it is fun to kick around, but you're right. It's a political problem, not a mathematical problem. And I'm convinced it will be fixed, but they might wait till 2034 to fix it. Well, better late than never, right? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Mary Beth. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Bruce. Great to talk to you both. Thanks, Jeff. Launching every Monday, it's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Investment News' very own Mary Beth Franklin. We also want to thank our sponsor this week, Charles Schwab Asset Management. Of course, we want to give a shout-out to Angelica Hester, our producer. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com. You can find it also uh, at Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Jeff's uh, Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guys. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.